Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Critical Theory, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm Gadam Sulongkumar, the host of this channel, and today I'm here with Dr. Jason Storm to talk about his book, Metamodernism, The Future of Theory. The interesting thing about the book, for me personally, right, was this one, that the book really resonated personally with me in a sense that uh, when I was reading through the book, I was kind of agreeing with the theory that has been presented. So I think that is something which is very interesting about the book that really resonated with me in myself as a reader. Uh, that was something which caught me. Secondly, the thing about this book is every chapter is a really big and a work and a big topic in itself. And I think uh, this work or the, this book has a long way to go in the sense of arguing about it, in the sense of developing the theories and the ideas that has been presented in the book. So I think it's a very tense book. And I should say um, this book, as I've said, will be talked and debated about in the years to come in the area of social sciences and in the in the field of theoretical development in the social sciences. So I think that is something which is very unique and interesting about this book. So Thank let you. me just go straight uh, to you, uh, Dr. Jason, uh, tell me something about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So just to give you um, a little bit of background, um, let's see, I'm not sure what level to, to, to narrativize that, but I'll just say, um, so this is my third book and it kind of emerges out of things I've been grappling with now, um, really since graduate school. So um, already when I was in graduate school, I was just um, absolutely um, enamored with theory, with critical theory, basically, uh, with continental philosophy or sometimes postmodernism, depending on, you know, they're slightly uh, overlapping sets, but not exactly the same thing. And I, even longer, I had been enamored with kind of world philosophy. I had done background um, and my dissertation was ultimately on Japanese uh, thinkers, um, but I had, you know, been into Chinese philosophy and South Asian philosophy and um, a little bit of African philosophy and indigenous political theory and what have you. And um but the thing that, that this book emerged from was, was an interest that started especially in graduate school with um, continental philosophical thought. And so I was one of those like uh, fanboys who would go around to uh, lectures by famous philosophers. Like I went to Derrida's lectures or Cornel West's lectures or Richard Rorty's lectures and just tried to kind of like soak it all in, you know, and, and I had the fortuitous um, happenstance of being located in places um, where I did my graduate schooling at, at Harvard and Stanford and then uh, in, in Paris for two years, where there was a lot of happening in terms of philosophy and in terms of theory. And I loved it. And I kind of um, grew to just sort of really deeply into a kind of postmodernist or post-structuralist um, theoretical formation. But after a certain point, I started to see its limitations. And I started to see that this theory that had constantly positioned itself, for example, as anti-hegemonic had become hegemonic. And that the, while it had made much valuable forms of, of progress, intellectual progress in certain regards, also was encountering predictable dead ends. 
And a lot of theory had become stuff that, you know, its best theory was brilliant and insightful and um, either had political or intellectual resonances and all this stuff. But at its worst, uh, it was um, American academics uh, writing as if they were bad translations of the French uh, or saying stuff that just sounded really cool. But if you thought about it long and hard, it, it didn't actually mean anything. And so partially um, this intellect, this book kind of emerged out of me grappling with my own formation, the intellectual formation I had in graduate school and trying to work through um, this sort of basis of what we might call, you know, heterodox philosophy or philosophy that's not taught in philosophy departments and trying to figure out what was useful, what was worth consolidating uh, and what wasn't and what was um, actually uh, getting in the way. Um, and so um, that's one way to put it. The, the other way I, I'd talk about the intellectual formation of this book, um, especially for your listeners who might be in areas like religious studies, um, is that I had already written a first book, The Invention of Religion in Japan, that was grappling with the category religion and how Japanese uh, thinkers encountered it for the first time and the problems they had with it, um, and uh, alongside categories such as secularism, science, superstition, etc. And um, in religious studies, we had um, have come to a moment where we have, uh, for a bunch of good reasons, come to dissolve or um, reject the category religion itself to argue that it's no longer useful for a range of different reasons. Um, and I was part of the movement that, that did that. And I'm not trying to walk back any of those critical insights, but rather after a certain point, I started talking to friends of mine in other units, people in English departments who had similar issues with the category of literature or people in um, aesthetics who had similar problems with art or anthropologists who were similarly skeptical of the category culture, et cetera. Um, and then my own secondary training is in an area of basically um, science and technology studies. And so the category science, although perhaps not in the exact same way, has also been critically challenged in, in science studies as well. So, but what I discovered was that people were making very analogous arguments in a whole bunch of different areas. And so, but, you know, not to say that these arguments were wrong, but that they had a kind of, well, what do we do next to them? Um, and, and what do we do if we say, okay, religion's not good, some scholars would say, so we should use this category of culture. But then anthropologists are saying we shouldn't use the category of culture, we should use the category of literature. But then the English department literature was being defaulted into religion or whatever. It was a cycle going around and around. And so one of the things that originally inspired this book was recognizing that these Arguments were happening in parallel, trying to figure out why they started happening and what we could do about them, what, what pos how positively we could build off of those kind of fundamental um, critical insights. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. And in your introduction, I think you have talked about yourself and also the uh, you know influence of the book, of how you came to write about the book. And that's really interesting in a sense of how you have been dabbling into different disciplines and looking at its development and trying to you know see it from a broader lens and uh, trying to really understand it in terms of your academic development and in terms of your studies, uh, specifically the area of religion. So I think that's a really good introduction. And I think uh, as, as a scholar, I think that is something which is very much needed and important in a sense of dabbling with different disciplines when you're looking at the concepts and certain ideas and all. So I think that itself uh, in itself is stocks or say something interesting about the book itself. So let's just straight away go into the contents of the book. I think I, I'm more interested into going into the contents of the book. So let's just go straight into the contents. So Sounds we'll good. go chapter yeah. by uh, yeah, we'll go chapter by chapter. And um, each chapter is a vast topic in itself. So I think we'll we'll see how much uh, we can cover in, in this short time uh, on this chapter, but I think we'll discuss some important, uh, as um, Dr. Chayson brings about, we'll discuss some important 
points in in the chapter. So I think in the 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 opening is more about the introduction and overview of the book. So let's just go into the part one of the book, that is meta realism. Now, the the first chapter, um, the the part one consists of one chapter, and the chapter is titled as "How the Real World Becomes a Fable" or the realities of social construction. Now, um, as I've seen this. Uh, this chapter is all about uh, realism and anti-realism and all. So um, can you discuss something about this book, uh, this chapter, yeah? Yeah, so just to give your readers um, just one little piece from the introduction before I go into that chapter. So the book is working through um, postmodernism as an academic model. So I, not a periodization, but as an academic model and trying to work through it in terms of five different areas. Um, one of which is this meta-realism, is a question of realism and anti-realism. And, and so, and, and my methodology, um, listeners should, should know is broadly Hegelian, although I'm not like a Hegel fanboy, but I think Hegel has an important insight, which is that um, faced with a certain kind of skepticism, um, what, uh, you know, he what Hegel calls the dialectic, um, you, there's a tendency for the movement of thought in various academic disciplines to begin with a positive statement, a critique of that, so a positive position or a, or a general abstraction, a negation, and then Hegel thinks that there's this key moment that thought turns on, which is the negation of the negation, which is how you find your way past certain kinds of paradoxical or skeptical impasses. And so what I decided to do in this book was to take that broad strategy, not like a, a meat grinder or something, like you can't just throw things into the dialectic and have them automatically spit out conclusions, but to kind of think through a set of problems or oppositions um, with that kind of suspicion in mind, to try and think about um, what would the negation of litigation look like of a, of a particular formation, um, and in each case to produce something that should stand on its own, so even without its prior antecedents. So, uh, and, and um, you're exactly right, Tia, that the, that the book's complicated, and each chapter is, is, a, is really like something that I um, could have written a whole book on, and I try and suck them down into um, something quite manageable, but, but it means that, that I have to, I had to cut a lot. So there's a lot more there than, than there's a lot in the footnotes, basically. Like, if you leave the footnotes, they're crazy, and it's because I have adopted also a sort of counter hegemonic reading program or anti-disciplinary reading program where I read like really widely uh, in any area. So um, not just, and I wanna read people I disagree with as well as people, uh, or I think that I'm gonna disagree with as well as people I, I already think I'm gonna agree with, et cetera. So um, to go into specifically the first problem that the book uh, sets out from is one of the stereotypes of something called postmodernism as an academic um, category as an economic model. And, and in the introduction, I also historicize the category postmodernism, but uh, so readers can read that. And so in, the first thing that postmodernism is often accused of is being a species of anti-realism. And so there's this common shorthand, which is like postmodern anti-realist that scholars kind of flip out for somebody probably that they don't really like. It's not something that they're engaging seriously. It's often met in a, in a polemical kind of way. Um, and then you start to wonder, well, who are the postmodern anti-realists? If you're skeptical, if you're uh, have the kind of intellectual frame of mind that I do. And you know, you would look at scholars like Derrida, for example, who say, well, actually, uh, I'm not trying to argue against the real. I'm interested in the real precisely where it disrupts discourse. So is that anti-realism? Well, it's a little bit hard for me to tell. Or um, you know, or or you might look at um, you know, a whole range of people. Most of the figures that get called postmodernists were not themselves anti-realists. They were something closer to kind of Kantians or skeptical neo-Kantians. So the question is, you know, who are the anti-realists and who are the realists and what do they really agree or disagree with um, each other about? And 
what I, so that's the, where the chapter kind of begins from, and it begins with a reference to, to Nietzsche, who is often considered one of the most famous anti-realists uh, because of a, of a particular uh, a form, formulation of his. Um, just to, to give you the quote, uh, the real world, an idea that is of no further use, not even as a compulsion, a useless idea, an idea that has become redundant, hence a disproved idea. Let's do away with it. And this is from uh, Nietzsche's uh, Twilight of the Idols. So, but... The position that, that Nietzsche comes to, for instance, is actually the denial of a real world behind the world of appearances. So Nietzsche is actually adopting a position. He's anti-Kantian. He's going to say there's no thing in itself. There's no real outside what we experience. But it actually, that position that gets called anti-realism in Nietzsche is the same position that sometimes gets called realism in other sectors of the academy is a kind of positivism that rejects the phenomena. So that's our first clue that what we think of when we're opposing realisms and anti-realisms is often um, either less or more than it appears. Um, and, and, and let me be even more specific. Sometimes realisms turn into each other, turn into anti-realisms and vice versa. And I trace some of those in the chapter. But more specifically also, I think a lot of the fight about realism is about the status of the current scientific worldview. And so people are calling each other realists or anti-realists uh, for, for their opinions about whether uh, uh, the status of scientific, of the, the quote unquote scientific paradigm. But often the people having the fight are not themselves scientists. They don't necessarily know what the current scientific paradigm is. So you see people fighting for things that uh, any physicist, theoretical physicist would laugh at or, or whatever. Uh, and um, it, it seems that a lot of it is uh, a lot of the debates around realism and anti-realism, people are just talking past each other. Both groups are saying, yes, the world isn't as it appears commonsensically. And both of them are saying certain uh, paradigmatic statements in the natural sciences are approximately true, or maybe they, we might be a little bit more or less confident in them. That seems to be what the debate is around. But the, uh, the place where the realism, anti-realism debate occurs most in philosophy of social sciences, and this is where it attracted the majority uh, of my interest, people uh, are fighting about being realists or anti-realists without being very clear about what they're talking about. In some cases, they tend to adopt the notion of uh, realism that is connected to notions of mind independence. So they say that the real is what is mind independent. And this is where it gets tangled in conversations about social construction. And, and, and one of the things that I'm very interested in that chapter is how we talk about social construction. Um, but there's this irony of scholars in the humanities and social sciences talking about mind independence, because you would think that most things that we're interested in are social formations in one form or another, and are in that respect precisely mind dependent. And while there's been a lot of ink spilled around mind independence, I observe that mind dependence has been rarely theorized. People haven't spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what do we really mean when we're talking about mind dependent? How many different ways could something be dependent on mind? And so I begin by providing a kind of typology There might be, you might think of certain things as like, for example, you know, um, causally mind dependent, like, um, like our, uh, like my car was uh, was, you know, minds came together to build my car. A bunch of people thought about it. They planned the car. They had an idea for how to build it, my Subaru. They put it together. Uh, but it, so it might have been, so it's causally mind dependent. If there were no people in the world, there would be never be a car if there'd never been any people. But on the other hand, um, and in that respect, the car might seem to be paradigmatically socially constructed. But on the other hand, if it hits you, it's still going to kill you. So that kind of mind dependence isn't a, a question about non-reality, but rather a question about um, how it came together, historical contingency, et cetera. And anyway, 
so anyway, I come up with a typology of about five or so different kinds of um, mind dependence. And uh, I think those will be useful for helping us specify what we're doing in a lot more detail when we're talking about things like social construction. But the other payoff of this chapter, and moving a little bit quickly, because I know we want to get through a, a somewhat long book, uh, is that I came to recognize that the category of real is itself primarily a contrastive term. Like if you really push in on it, people, there are many different ways for things to be described as real. So the example I use in the chapter is that uh, the stat uh, a statue of Madonna might be a real statue, but not the real Madonna. But there are many different ways, like a dream might be real in the sense that we experience it or uh, not real in the sense that it didn't actually happen in the physical world or, or whatever. Um, or, you know, you can come up with tons of different ways. Something could be not real because it's, uh, you know, a, um, uh, not the real Madonna could also mean like it's not the, the uh, famous pop celebrity Madonna or it's not the Madonna, the mother of Christ or, you know, all these are different kinds of ways that someone could actually be a person, but not the real Madonna. All that is to say, I think uh, that the notion of the real often obscures what it is we're actually fighting about. And what we needed is that there's an implicit contrast category that is rarely specified. And so what we need to do is be meta about Realism, in other words, be uh, be uh, able to be self-conscious and self-reflexive about when people are using the category "real" and referring to something as real or or not real, uh, rather than taking for granted um, the uh, existence of the real as a category, as a fundamental category. And so, um, in that chapter, I, I work through a bunch of different thinkers and I try and specify, articulate that, and 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 describe its relevance for those of us who are working on a whole range of things. I think it clears up a lot of debates around, for example, you know, people want to say that the um, satanic panic. Uh, of uh, of the late 1980s uh, wasn't real um, insofar as, you know, people want to argue, is it, was it real or was it not real? Well, we now can say, be more sophisticated about that. We can say it was not real insofar as far as we know, there weren't any satanic cults uh, abusing people, at least not on large scale, but it was real insofar as people were panicking about it or, or what have you. It lets us, you know, be more fine-grained about what we're talking about um, when we're talking about categories uh, like the real. The other thing that I would say that it also, um, uh, this is not a species, a, a lot of people think that, you know, um, what, what we need to say is that if you're really experiencing something, it is real. But th that isn't really saying anything. We're, we're not, you're not adding something. If, if everything somebody say that they're experiencing is something that's real to them, that's uh, tautological. You're just restating that they're experiencing something. And often people are self-deceived and are misguided about the things that they're experiencing. You know, uh, I thought I saw a snake and then, you know, uh, and then I was freaked out about it. And then I, I looked later and I realized it wasn't a snake. So, you know, we, we have to allow we have to just be more sophisticated. So we can say he really believed he saw a snake and you know that might be irrelevant whether there really was a snake there or not, but it, but it lets us be more sophisticated about how we're using the term real. Yeah. And so that's the kind of meta-realism I led in that chapter. And it shows us how uh, in, in that chapter, I'm trying to work us past the assumption of the binary opposition between realists and anti-realists, show what they share, uh, kind of cancel them out in a certain way and then figure out how we might productively move forward in the humanities and social sciences. And that in that way, it serves as a sort of blueprint uh, or, or, or prime example of the kind of work I'm doing throughout the book. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So I think this is where I think social sciences comes in because 
for me as an anthropologist, I mean, my basic training is, is anthropology, but I'm very interested in philosophy at the same time. And in philosophy, the dichotomy between realism and anti-realism is very starkly dichotomized, right? And uh, this is where philosophers work from. But then as social scientists, um, I mean, looking at this realism and anti-realism and trying to understand this one, it brings up a different flavor in trying to understand this dichotomy. And then as you have clearly mentioned that the dichotomy sometimes maybe falls in the sense of how we understand certain categories in the social life, right? And I think that is something uh, which is very important in the sense of, uh, you know, the contribution in this very chapter and uh, as the, the, you know, the way you have conceptualized complexity and the concept of realism and anti-realism and then, you know, propounded a very uh, an understanding of meta-realism. So I think that is uh, what I, I would say the very important aspect of this chapter, uh, talking about realism and inter-realism. Now let's go to part two of the book, Process Social Ontology. And this is the second chapter here. Uh, the second chapter is titled as Concepts in Disintegration and Strategies for Demolition. Now here you talk about the fluid nature of concepts. So can you expand more on this very chapter here? Yeah. So. Um, so in the chapter two, um, which at one time was going to be like the whole book, basically, um, but then thankfully um, I expanded beyond it or ha had a bunch of different issues, it is an attempt to deal with these categories. So, you know, you, you, uh, it begins with quotes about the end of various disciplines, um, you know, in uh, parts of the social sciences, the category of the social was disintegrated in parts of um, anthropology, the category of culture was disintegrated in, in religion, we've disintegrated the category of religion, um, you know, in religious studies for instance. Um, and so what this chapter does is it tries to figure out um, what different ways people came to criticize those categories. Why did we come to criticize those categories at the same moment? Um, and then it notes that there are certain common strategies uh, through which categories are typically disintegrated. Um, these master categories are typically disintegrated. Um, what it does, and, and so far I've actually, this is the, one of the chapters about which I've had some of the most positive uh, feedback by emails already, uh, particularly from graduate students who say, you know, oh, great, you're, you're telling us what we really need to know about uh, how, how this works. Because what I do is I provide a kind of, quote, unquote, deconstructive uh, dojo, um, which by which I mean a, a set of strategies by which you can destroy or take apart any conceptual category, uh, basically, um, and that scholars have used to, to, to make those, um, to, to engage in that kind of demolition. So, you know, it tells you about um, so I do it by surveying, you know, the critique of the category of religion and religion and the category art and art, um, art history um, and philosophy of art, et, et cetera, and showing that, you know, and, and then building off of those in a lot of other areas and showing that basically um, there's a kind of skepticism around categories that can take different forms. It can be normative or it can be epistemological or, or it can be kind of anthropological, but it all tends to make similar kinds of observations around um, categories that, uh, that look like unities, but are actually heterogeneous or um, categories that have, most of our categories have built in normative force that we don't tend to recognize. Um, or there's a lot of um, intellectual energy and anxiety over the way that categories change or are heterogeneous. So, you know, the term religion hasn't always meant the same thing at all times in all places uh you can or you know um uh, scholars after scholar will say uh culture x does not have our category of art or or whatever without necessarily specifying what our our the who is the we uh, uh in that sentence but anyway it doesn't have their cat their category um or uh, by showing the heterogeneity of things. All the things subsumed under the notion of economics are actually incredibly diverse and, and don't really look the same. Um, anyway, I lay out a set of those strategies and I lay them out um, a little bit playfully. I call it a kind of deconstructive Jojo and I provide them, provide 
uh, or describe them as if they're kind of recipes uh, for, for demolition. But I think my business is pretty serious in that uh, my goal is not to make fun of those critiques, but actually to figure out, well, if all these social categories can be criticized in similar ways, what does it tell us about how those categories themselves were formulated and put together or how they work? So in other words, kind of granting the, uh, the deconstructive enterprise for what insights it might provide us on how humans and other kinds of social animals construct and build uh, their conceptual architecture and, and even social worlds. So, um, so it, it, I, um, you know, and I also historicize it to some extent. I talk a little bit about Wittgenstein and uh, the turn against certain notions of the concept and, and what have you. Uh, but, but in any case, um, and I look at different attempts that people have um, formulated uh, in many different disciplines, but that tend to converge on the same kinds of strategies to try and uh, reject or resist the dissolution of the categories. And I show how, um, you know, you might think that the answer is to go to polythetic, polythetic classes or, um, or uh, prototype-based category formation, but how that leads to contradictions. Or you might think that if you grant one piece of it, um, if you just grant open categories, or if you just grant reporting, whatever your um, anthropological interlocutors report, that's good enough. And I show how all of those kinds of things uh, terminate in different kinds of impasses. And what one discipline tried um, is trying today, other disciplines tried and failed uh, 20 years ago or something. Like, I don't know, even I was at this conference, a virtual conference in Germany last week, where scholars were unbeknownst to themselves, um, recovering, uh, uh, were defending the category of religion by recovering what was called basically the institutional theory of art, which philosophers of art had, had built in, um, had, had argued, uh, Dickey and others around art, um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, maybe even more, and which had then collapsed. And so, you know, and so I was able to say, hey, look, this argument that you're making, you probably don't know this because you think religion is a unique category, but if you look at these other debates, you'll see uh, we can accelerate the conversation. We can see where that this critique is going to dead end, and and where it's actually going to um, get you into more trouble than uh, get us into more trouble than it get us gets us out of. So that chapter is probably the most negative chapter in the book. Uh, it is the one that is the most uh, uh, demolition oriented. But I think that demolition is important because part of the function of the whole project is that I'm not trying to uh, deny or repudiate. Um, critical um, acumen or critique or deconstruction so much as work through it and out the other side. I think we do need an orientation toward our conceptual categories that, that ha having first deconstructed them, the thing is it just can't end there. So having deconstructed religion, you might think you know, there is nothing more to be said and go home or something like that. But actually, uh, I think we can actually grant the critiques and, and work forward. And that's what I then try and do in the other chapters in that section. Yeah. Some of the things that you have said about concepts and how they are built philosophically, right? How they are built and, you know, how people understand it and how we use it and how it changes through history. I think that is something which is quite interesting about this chapter in that sense. And I think readers will also find this aspect of the chapter really interesting uh, in, in the sense of trying to understand, really understand the heart of what really concept is, you know, and how it really moves in terms of history and in terms of the usage uh, of how people uses it. And I think this chapter is also really very much integrated by the other chapters that are there in, in the in the second section. And uh, the third chapter is process social ontology. And you know what what really is process social ontology now i mean people talk about process theism and what not process and also what really is this process social ontology yeah yeah, great. And so one of the things I'm also committed to in this book is not being um, an, an example of, I'll say, not bullshit theory. 
what I, what I mean to say is that a lot of theory um, is stuff that sounds really cool, but you don't really know what it is. And if you push into it too far, um, it turns out to be just some kind of jargon um, or, you know, scholars will say something that, that, you know, sounds fabulous. But then if you th really think about the implications, doesn't make any sense. In opposition to that, I wanted to uh, be very clear about my theoretical terms. I'm not saying you shouldn't invent new terms. So that's part of one of the value of theory. Um, but uh, I also try and gloss all of them. I try and explain all of them so that, you know, I, I, I want you to be able to tell if I'm wrong, you know, and, and, and know what, I, you know, you may disagree with me. You should know what you're disagreeing with. I don't want to hide behind any kind of obscurantism. And so um, what I'm talking about in process social ontology is I'm merging two things together. In the first instance, uh, this is a, the, this question, um, you know, the word ontology has become this weird buzzword in a lot of different disciplines that actually don't necessarily realize that they're talking past each other. Uh, for, for many anthropologists, the word ontology functions roughly as a proxy for, for an older anthropological category of worldview. But it's like, you know, each each people has its own ontology or something like that. Or, you know, maybe 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 it's a little more robust than that because it's talking about ways of world making, not just worldviews. But still, uh, it tends to be kind of relativizing to, to, to engage in ontology in that sense. Whereas in political theory, uh, um, ontology, um, and I'm thinking of the work uh, uh, in folks like Jane Bennett and some of her followers, um, ontology functions as a description of things uh, that exist. The question is like what exists and, and what has agency in their particular vocabulary. And um, so, and, and I'm more interested in this in this uh, tertiary sense, in this later sense, in this sense of um, ontology being a question about what exists or how does it exist. In other words, by doing social ontology, I'm interested in how is it that social things come into being? What is it that we're talking about when we're talking about social? What is it that you know, money, you might make money out of five different kinds of objects. I mean, you might have a coin or paper or digital um, cards or plastic chips or, or, or whatever you might even, you know, uh, all of which is equally money. So what about it makes it money? And what about it, you know, what is it about the social that makes things social? Um, you know, when, when are, um, and so that question about how social things exist um, is what this chapter begins to explore. And I answer it by looking at processes. So what I want to suggest is that there has been a robust critique in a bunch of different areas about um, what you could call reification, which is called thingification, or uh, in, in terms of the followers of um, Whitehead, in terms of misplaced concreteness, uh, Marxist theory, again, yeah, um, alienation or thingification. Um, uh, and so all of this suggests that um, we have a tendency uh, and I, I mean, I think these crit critics are right that we have a tendency as social beings of treating objects in our social sphere, our categories, as if they were kind, basically like natural kinds, as if, you know, and, and there's also uh, psychological evidence of this based on, um, you know, uh, uh, survey data. Um, uh, uh, but basically, people tend to essentialize. Uh, and treat as if they're universal, their social categories. So you think that the category religion uh, is universal, or you know, people tend to think that that uh, different people of different religions have different essences. Or um, you know, there's been a lot of great critical work on the category race, race, and how horrible it is, and how deeply its essentialization undergirds contemporary American culture, and as well as elsewhere, and what have you. Um, and so, for that reason, there's a, been a strong turn against uh, essentialism in a whole range of disciplines, uh, including in feminist theory, which is how I begin this chapter. Um, but anti-essentialism on its own, like many other kinds of negations, uh, tends to, you know, is great as a critique, but then doesn't necessarily end up anywhere. It, it just describes the thing that it's trying to dissolve while at the same time uh, being heavily invested in, in the thing it's trying to disintegrate. So um, what I want to suggest is that, you know, anti-essentialism is important, but it doesn't go far enough. And so what I, uh, by contrast, um, I gesture toward Whitehead and others um, more specifically um, who, who begin to think about the world in terms of 
um, processes. And so Whitehead famously had a process ontology or process metaphysics. He was most interested in physics. He wasn't interested in the social world. Here, uh, what I'm interested in is what we might call the social world. And, and I want to note that um, it, it's almost, it should almost be common sense, but many of the categories through which, um, you know, many of our social categories are basically processes. Um, one of the things that we think of as, you know, a, a central to, um, you know, our social categories are constantly changing and evolving. Uh, they tend to evolve in certain kinds of ways or, or change in certain kinds of ways. Um, they tend to, um, uh, they tend to be heterogeneous in their formation. They tend to recruit other processes. Uh, social kinds tend to cross-cut. All these different things that we might say about our social categories are actually the same kinds of things we want to say about processes. Now, some people who have already looked at processes, I'm thinking about thinkers like Bill Connolly, have tended to get out of looking at Whitehead and others, uh, a notion of flux. Like if things are processes, then you know they could suddenly change in unpredictable ways. Actually, in the cases of the social, that's I don't think that's necessarily true. What I think is that uh, what we might call the social world is constantly unfolding and it has various rates of change, so, sometimes mm. surprising ones. And I have a, I, I rehearse a long litany of scholars in different disciplines, anthropologists talking about change in cultural transmission, uh, linguists talking about linguistic shifts, uh, economists mm. talking about uh, uh, changing in economic and social practices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I want to suggest that as long as things are not changing faster than we're studying them, we can begin to study and talk about them. And there may be cases in which they are, you know, in which case we have to recognize that. But, uh, but, but all that is to say, many of the things that we're interested in are changing in ways that we can at least describe retroactively. We can talk about all the changes that went on before they came to the present moment. And um, even if we can't necessarily predict, we can describe our current moment and how they're unfolding. So what I suggest is that a reorientation toward the social sciences in terms of processes, not as a metaphor, but actually in a very literal sense as actually things, uh, thinking about them in terms of processes, um, gives us new insights into them. And it addresses many of the critiques that I had, uh, that I articulated in the earlier chapter, that I described in the earlier chapter. Many of the ways that we're deconstructing things make sense if what we're actually talking about is processes that are being mistaken for substances. And so, uh, and so then uh, what I then suggest is that, that this gives us a, a broader sense. And I, um, I have in chapter three, a, a kind of first pass at what this tells us about the kinds of things we're talking about in the social sphere, that they tend to be high entropic, for example. So, you know, that they don't have single easy essences that are um, definable by necessary and sufficient conditions, that they tend to be interdependent, that they tend to cross cut. Anyway, I list a lot of things that they tend to be abstractions or reifications that tend to be treated with misplaced concreteness, that they tend to be normative, that they tend to lack discrete boundaries, uh, et cetera, and, um, the, and that they tend to be mind dependent uh, um, and historically and culturally contingent. And I think if you grant all of that, then you've actually discovered quite a bit where all this stuff that looked like negative work, that looked like it was merely deconstructive, then we can see what it is telling us about the way that uh, uh, quote unquote, the social is put together. Um, and so, um, again, I'm not reconceptualizing the social world primarily as a matter of terminology or metaphor. I'm not trying to get rid of nouns uh, or something like that. But what I want to do is, uh, uh, is, is show us that thinking about uh, focusing on processes over substance in the human sciences leads us toward different modes of investigation. Um, and it reinforces, uh, it should get us out of certain cliches and, and um, open our minds toward different kinds of um, endeavors. And so uh, different kinds of research and scholarship. Um, all that is to say, just to recap, I think um, thinking about uh, about the social world in terms of processes should open up new avenues of research and be a way of granting much of the critique that might otherwise be associated with anti-essentialism, deconstruction, and what have you. Um, and, and so that's like a kind of first move of that section. So how the social kinds exist, how, how, does, how do social things exist? They exist as processes, for example. Yeah.
Uh, let's come to chapter four, and this kind of unfolds from chapter three itself, and where you distinguish between social categories and social kinds. And I think this is something, uh, in this chapter, I think there are many concepts to grapple with in, ter in terms of how you introduce anchoring also. So I think, um, say something about this chapter, yeah. Yeah, so in this chapter, um, I begin by asking the question, you know, what is the social world made of? And I note that the what seems to be to many people the obvious answer, um, uh, individual people turns out to be a problem. So this was anchoring in a huge range of disciplines where anchored, rejected older notions of cultural or social holism and became really invested in something called methodological individualism. And methodological individualism, um, you know, uh, had some benefits to it. It, it had the distinct advantage of um, simplicity and clarity and did a bunch of good work in um, uh, eliminating certain kinds of bad theorizing, but it has run aground because of its inability to explain things like group norms, institutions, corporations, and, and collectives, um, including things like the economy, even as a whole. And so, um, which is not to say that explanations at the individual level are necessarily false, but that they're often insufficient. And so I wanted to kind of think, and here I'm also engaging with the philosophical literature that calls itself social ontology. So there's a there is some literature here um, that, that I'm engaging with. And, and um, partially what I wanted to suggest is that uh, if we avoid methodological individualism and various uh, sort of discredited kinds of holism, it gives us a new vantage on the social world. And, and I want to argue um, for this proxy term we could call social kinds. And social kinds are not natural kinds. They have their own kinds of properties to them. But they are um, best understood as temporary zones of stability in unfolding processes uh, that are instantiated in their materialization. Um, uh, I, I, that's I'm reading for myself there. But basically, the social world is not built just out of social animals, but also out of their materialized signs. Uh, so, you know, you might think of a no smoking sign or an ant's uh, uh, chemical trail as social kinds with certain kinds of social functions. And part of the programmatic uh, maneuver in this chapter two is to, uh, by uh, not presuming a nature culture binary or a social non, you know, social uh, or an anthropocentric account of the social, it, it lets us see how humans aren't the only social creatures, but actually at the very least, um, creatures like, you know, uh, wolves and ants and dolphins and, and uh, what have you all um, can produce certain kinds of social kinds. And, and what I'm interested in is how humans and, and other social entities have the capacity to produce second order kinds of entities uh, that have uh, their own kinds of properties that are different than the properties of people. I'm talking about things like hammers, money, traffic jams, but including things like social categories like professors, punk rock, or Buddhist monks, or necessarily disciplinary master categories like religion, uh, art, science, etc. And so I'm using social kinds as a very minimal definition, uh, as a you know uh, meant to be a very broad category, not not meant to be social as opposed to political or social as opposed to cultural, but merely as a proxy for the kinds of um, clustered properties uh, that uh, are, are ways that that social entities can cluster properties and and Im, uh, imbue things with those properties. So. Um, uh, basically, you know, they're, you know, they're generalizations about people that are not true generalizations about hammers. You can make different kinds of generalizations about hammers and people, uh, but, uh, uh, and humans are, you know, or another way to think about it is, you know, um, as uh, uh, in my capacity as chair of the science and technological studies program, I have certain kinds of powers that I don't have uh, in my capacity as uh, when I'm, you know, even though I'm the exact same person uh, in my capacity as just you know, some guy walking down the street or something like that, even though I'm the same person, or maybe a better example, you know, uh, the, the, the Supreme Court justices have powers that are not just 
limited to uh, uh, descriptions of what they themselves can do, but require understanding the whole institution of the Supreme Court on a larger scale than, uh, than, than just that set of individuals or something like that. All that is to say, um, I want to make a distinction uh, between the kinds of um, linguistic categories we use and the kinds of things that we're often trying to refer to with those categories. Um, and um, not to say that our reference is irrelevant, actually, our, our, our linguistic categories are actually often some of the things that determine properties and social kinds, but to begin to think of um, the kind of social world as composed not so much of people, but of these kind of social categories or social kinds, which are kind of, uh, which I describe as homeostatic property cluster kinds. Um, and, and so, um, uh, you know, and, and here I'm departing from uh, this homeostatic properties cluster kind theory in um, evolutionary or in, in philosophy of biology, um, promoted by the late Richard Boyd, who um, read this chap, uh, read some of my stuff, and I read a bunch of his stuff, and uh, sadly he, he's passed away. But instead, uh, um, um, I depart from his work in in, uh, in some interesting ways because I'm not also trying to capture um, uh, uh, natural kinds. But what I want to say is that social kinds are socially constructed dynamic clusters of powers, uh, which are demarcated by the causal processes that anchor the relevant clusters. Um, that sounds. Uh, sort of dense and we could go into a lot. We could probably talk for a whole hour about, about that. But um, here I'm, I'm engaging with uh, anchoring literature uh, um, in the writing of uh, people like Epstein and his book, The Ant Trap. But I'm, I'm also trying to expand on it and um, connect it up to notions of um, uh, uh, property clusters um, and thinking about what we mean when we're talking about socially constructed. And, and the end result is, uh, well, there's a lot there. So it has a lot of implications for how we should do scholarship in the humanities and social sciences. Um, it, it kind of is an attempt to put a Foucauldian, turn a Foucauldian genealogical project on its head, maybe. That might be the simplest way to talk about it. When uh, I was trained in many ways primarily as a Foucauldian genealogist, and, and what you're doing when you're doing a Foucauldian genealogy is primarily showing how something that looks like a unity is actually the process of historical change uh, and discontinuity and diversity. So you show that something is uh, uh, that looks like unity is actually heterogeneous. And a lot of Foucauldian genealogies get their get their mileage by showing aha something is you know uh, perhaps socially constructed by by which they mean uh, um, that it's changed over time or it's heterogeneous in certain ways. I want to say we first grant that all the social categories are heterogeneous. Uh, in this respect, it's a it's a um, uh, insofar as it's a hegemonic theory, it's a counter-hegemonic theory in its own way because it argues that the central feature of things is not similarity but difference uh, and change and heterogeneity. Um, but then the question becomes, what are the processes by which things might, uh, similarity might be produced? So in other words, if you assume that the default is change uh, difference and instability. The, the problem to solve is not social change, but social stabilities or social uh, or, or the different processes that cause different social kinds to have certain clusters of properties and have them somewhat consistently. So it, it, in that respect, it's a kind of reversal uh, of what might go on in a Foucauldian project that grants a kind of Foucauldian set of assumptions. Um, and what it lets us do is be much more fine grained. And you know, when we're talking about um, the different kinds of ways that certain kinds of social uh, that, that social kinds can be brought into being. So um, it's not just linguistic. Like in some disciplines, you think language plus power equals a new category. Uh, often that power is under theorized, but, but, but then, um, and, but language, there are many things that language doesn't do and doesn't produce. So, you know, we would have traffic jams even if we didn't have a word for traffic jams. Uh, traffic jams turn out to emerge secondarily once you have cars, uh, for, for instance, and, and sufficient uh, congestion or, or what have you. 
Um, so anyway, I talk about many different kinds of anchoring processes in this chapter, um, but I don't think that my list is exhaustive. And I think it has payoffs for how we do all the basic kind of work that we might want to do in the humanities and social sciences. Um, uh, again, for time reasons, we'll probably want to move forward, but just I, I encourage you to look at that chapter. It's the, one of the longer chapters in the book. It's somewhat dense, but I think it provides us with ways to address uh, some fundamental issues in social ontology more broadly, but also think about how the social world is changing. And for those listeners who are activists, I think it provides, um, you know, we have to understand the social world in order to change it. And I think this gives us some clues about how we might engage in that social change. Uh, for, for those of you who are in disciplines that are anti-theoretical, like history departments, I think this, this shows you why you might have certain kinds of problems and how you might solve them by defaulting to a notion of social kinds. For, for, for sociologists and anthropologists, this may anchor uh, or may not anchor exactly, but may help you ground some of the work that you're already doing, but might cause you to change significantly your points of emphasis uh, and may cause you to look at different places for the kinds of things that we're, we're talking about. It, it'll, 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 it helps us realize, I think, much more sophisticatedly than uh, is often the case when we're actually talking past each other. And so one of the parts of this, this chapter is also an attempt to figure out, you know, when we're talking about religion, are we really talking about the same thing? And 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 in many ways we aren't. And, you know, why are we talking about it the way we are, et cetera. So um, all of that is there in this sort of dense theoretical chapter. It's probably yeah. one of the, I, I think people find it one of the harder chapters in the book to get through. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but, but I hope uh, your listeners will be patient and, uh, um, and, and, it, but I, and, and it has, a, I think, a very concrete payoff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really true. You know, for me also personally, I think uh, the chapters that I really want to have in-depth discussion and, you know, in-depth exploration on is this chapter three and four, which, uh, which I find is something, something which is very important, actually, because I think these dichotomies and all are something which is not really thought about in philosophy class or you know in our our uh, anthropology department as such. So I think dichotomy of natural kinds and process social kinds and how the anchoring process works and all. I think th this is something quite interesting and which I want to have more discussion on. But then uh, we'll move on. Part three: uh, hylosemiotics. Now I think our discussion naturally leads us into language here. Chapter four: hylosemiotics. The discourse of things. Uh, what really is hylosemiotics? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the other um, things that probably won't escape any of your listeners is that a lot of the fights are actually fights about language. So a lot of the fights in academic disciplines, a lot of the characterizations of either postmodernism or, in this case, uh, the set of linguistic philosophies often called poststructuralist, uh, or um, even those of you who who read things like new materialism, a lot of these are fights about language and meaning. Whether they're um, and a lot of things that we're doing in the humanities and social sciences is um, is figuring out, trying to debate around interpretation. So, you know, uh, in in the formulations of people like Ricoeur or, or um, Charles Taylor, you know, humans are self-interpreting animals. We we are meaning we're you know we're hermeneutic beings, um, and so. This chapter uh, starts out from a particular kind of dissatisfaction um, with the dominant theories of meaning that I was getting both in um, the uh, from from folks in um, first and foremost from folks in post-structuralist uh, determined environments, you know, people like Derrida and company, but also from analytic philosophy. And so, um, you know, think thinkers like Kripke and uh, for those of you and Putnam and, you know, uh, uh, for those of you listeners who happen to be um, in analytic philosophy, you know, um, it, you know, we, we 
have long characterized philosophy um, and theory in terms of the linguistic turn, as uh, Richard Rorty's uh, you know famous uh, compilation on that subject. And, and so you know, there's been a lot of ink spilled about language and meaning. And I, the the dissatisfaction I had, and and it came to me at a particular moment. I was actually doing fieldwork in Japan um, uh, at the time um, at this about this particular Shinto Buddhist shrine um, that venerates Thomas Edison uh, as a, in a divinized form. And while I was you know did my fieldwork at the at the shrine, and I went for a hike. Um, and I saw a, a snow monkey uh, that, that kind of communicated at me, kind of chattered at me. And uh, it, it, um, it's sort of one of those random things that could have just been, you know, uh, I could have ignored. But um, I, it made me begin to worry about how we might think of human language making practices on a continuum with the animal world. Um, and uh, to think about, you know, um, these questions about how language might uh, produce the environment. Um, and, and how the connection between language and perception. So one of the things that uh, a lot of uh, theorists about language, let's say in linguistics departments or in philosophy departments uh, have tended to, to do is, is be super specialized and to separate issues of existence, uh, perception and language. But I wanted to argue that you can make a lot of progress if you kind of consider those things together. In other words, you kind of move beyond the linguistic turn insofar as it's not, not paradigmatically a focus on language as just human spoken language, but beginning to think about the meaning making activities of not just humans, but other animals, right? And so, you know, noting that there are certain unique features of human languages, but uh, but noting that, that even if human languages are unique in some ways, they had to evolve from somewhere and they may be more contiguous than you might think with um, other non-human communicative practices. And so to do that, um, uh, first I kind of rehash, so sir, uh, and why many of the post, so-called post-structuralists um, were not so much showing problems with language in general as showing why a broadly Saussurean uh, philosophy of language uh, encounters certain paradoxes. Uh, so, you know, and, and runs aground. Like you can't, if you think all meaning is difference, which is not something Saussure actually said, although uh, well, he said a version of that, but he qualified it elsewhere. But if you think all meaning is difference and there's no such thing as reference, you're, you're gonna get into a mess. You're gonna come to think that, you know, language is gonna be, fun, you, is, is impossible. Communication is impossible, perhaps. Um, so that, that doesn't seem like a promising route. Uh, but, and then the, there's a group of folks called new materialists uh, who already know that they're rejecting that, but I, I wanna argue that they then take many of the features of a broadly Saussurean philosophy of language and just turn them into ontology, unfortunately. I mean, I read that stuff, uh, a lot of it has some use, but um, you know, the notion of assemblage is the exact same thing as the word structure. The same word in French uh, is translated sometimes as structure and assemblage, uh, but now assemblages are supposed to be features of the world instead of features of language. Uh, or you know, you might think of actant, which, uh, which Bruno Latour got from narrative theory and then projects it onto the world. Or you know, th there's a whole bunch of stuff that's basically just lit theory projected onto the environment. And I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think the new materialists were right to focus on the materiality of, of language or materiality uh, of the world, but they were unsophisticated in that they had inherited too much from a set of theories. Uh, yeah, let, let me not say unsophisticated, but let me just say that, that they had inherited much more from the post-structuralism that they were repudiating than they recognized. And so many of their assumptions about the world were just ontologized versions of post-structuralist theories of language. So what's an alternative? Well, um, this is something that um, I began thinking about and talking about with my brother, actually, uh, Seth Josephson, who is a, a critical animal studies guy. Uh, and what we had observed already uh, is that if you tried to base uh, a notion of meaning not on Saussure, but on thinkers like Peirce 
uh, Charles Saunders Peirce, and particularly a, a Baltic German biologist named Jakob von Uxkuhl, um, you, you might have a, a very different sense of what the, the world could look like. Um, in other words, if you assume instead of the Saussurian doctrine about the um, uh, about signs and the arbitrariness of the sign and, and the, the notion of difference, et cetera, you began to think about different ways that meaning might be constructed. Um, and what Uxkuhl adds is this notion that um, animals uh, broadly understood uh, are um, hermeneutic beings, that when a tick is, is in an environment, it's looking and sensing for di different kinds of things. It's not just producing communicative signs, but it's looking for aspects of its environment to interpret. And so coming out of that, I start to look at the materialization of signs. I, I, I bring together here very more explicitly theor more certain theorists, uh, Peirce, to some extent Heidegger, to some extent Ruth Millikan, uh, and um, Jakob von Uxkuhl, uh, and, and um, Drawing them together, I, I think it shows us how sentient beings have the capacity to interpret both voluntary and involuntary signs, the contrast here being scalar rather than binary, but that we interpret things both that are um, conscious communicative acts, like you know what I'm trying to say to you right now, but unconscious things. Like if you were uh, those, if we were actually like totally visually, you could see that I'm drinking tea and that I'm running out of my tea or whatever. Like that's something I'm not meaning to communicate, but that you can read. That's a sick sign that you can read uh, in me uh, or in your environment, and that this uh, this gives us a better sense about what's going on uh, when animals are are communicating involuntary signs, but also in involuntary signs. Um, in other words, what this is broadly speaking is an inferential account of meaning that connects meaning up to processes of sign production and sign consumption uh, and looks at how uh, signs are uh, both produced and, and consumed by a full spectrum of creatures, not just people, but also um, many other, you know, I'm keeping a little bit open-ended, but sentient beings, uh, at, at the very least, uh, things like cats and uh, and dogs and you know ticks, uh, etc. And and I think stepping out from that solves us a bunch of problems uh, in uh, a philosophy of language. And and I some I say this with some humility. Uh, there's a, some you know analytic. If there are analytic philosophers listening, I know that I still some distance to go. I cut. My, uh, some of the sections of the chapter that were longer engagements with uh, uh, Saul Kripke and, and Putnam and uh, my Quine section got really trimmed down, but, um, and there's more work to be done there. Uh, but I think uh, at the very least, I think it gives us a fresh uh, approach uh, to, to, to semiotics. I'm building off of thinkers also like Bryce, uh, but, but arguing against notions of natural information for those of you listening for whom that, that name dropping means anything. Uh, but um, but what I want to suggest is that it, that it solves problems. For example, um, in, in much of, post uh, of the post-structuralist world, people get this idea that translation is impossible. Uh, and the irony, of course, uh, and I'm not the first to observe this, but, uh, but, but there's a strong irony in that because many of the arguments for the impossibility of translation are themselves translations. So when Derrida wants to tell you about how translation, uh, translating James Joyce is impossible, uh, translating James Joyce into French is impossible, he provides a translation uh, of James Joyce. And the better and more elaborate his translation of James Joyce, the more he's able to convince you that something is lost. Or, you know, uh, uh, and Benjamin Worf, when he's talking about how uh, uh, that, you know, uh, the ability of um, uh, indigenous American languages to communicate things that are uh, not communicable in what he calls standard European languages. He communicates them in standard European languages. And, and even more fundamentally, you know, uh, you know so, so this is a fundamental paradox. The more you can tell me that is lost in translation, in other words, the more things that should justify your theory of the impossibility of translation, the more that very theory is undercut. And we might also add that we mostly get these theories themselves in translation. So I note that we get 
you know, the impossibility of translation, uh, uh, which was articulated in French and then is translated into English and then, you know, or, or, or what have you. Um, so I, I want to focus on how um, this kind of uh, hylosemiotics or, you know, what, which, I, which by which I mean a kind of materialized uh, semiotics uh, helps us work through uh, what the limitations of translation, uh, but uh, and show how it's possible, even if it's fraught and difficult in many different ways. Um, and in ways that I think will be a benefit of those uh, listeners who are themselves um, interested in questions of translation. Um, and then, you know, in addition to that, I also then talk about um, different ways in which focusing on take, doing our, our uh, um, thinking about perception, uh, the world and language together can uh, address not just issues of reference, but also questions about how mind and the environment relate to each other. So there's been this trend, for example, in certain cognitive science circles uh, to focus on um, versions of the embodied mind or extended mind. Um, and I, you know, we, we can begin to think about how knowledge emerges from the exploratory, exploratory manipulation of the physical world or about how uh, every kind of meaning uh, communicative meaning requires materialization. You only know I'm talking to you because sound waves have been materialized uh, in the environment or because things have been written down, uh, et cetera. Um, again, <laughs> another dense chapter, but one that I think has some concrete payoffs uh, in, in helping us think through uh, interpretation. In other words, in a way, deepening and working through the linguistic turn by looking at its uh, materialization and how it, how it shows us you know how different kinds of interpretations come into come into being, and 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 how not just humans, but a bunches of other kinds of creatures in our environment are hermeneutic beings. Yeah, interpretive creatures. Um, yeah, and you know, uh, prior to reading this book, um, I was reading Graham Herman, the object-oriented ontology, and I was also reading about the extended mind and all of those aspects. And I think. Uh, while reading this book, all of it uh, kind of came together in these chapters, and I, I think that was quite interesting. And I think, uh, you know, these chapters, how it provides a way beyond the linguistic uh, categories of postmodernism is something very interesting for readers to look through and also to debate about. I think that, that is something which is very helpful in this very chapter. So um, let's move to the part four of the book, Knowledge and Value. Now, the chapter six is Zetetic knowledge. Now, um, this chapter delves into epistemology and something, epistemology is something which I have also personally been dabbling with a lot uh, in my own personal thinking. Uh, and I think uh, this, some, uh, this is something, uh, the word Zetetic knowledge has something uh, which really helped me in terms of thinking about this thing. So what mm -hmm. this Zetetic knowledge is all about, yeah. Yeah, so um, this chapter sets out from the observation that postmodernism is regularly um, described as a kind of radical skepticism, but it isn't actually uh, a completely radical skepticism. In point of fact, uh, often what it is is a kind of what we might call a kind of skeptical dogmatism, which is to say many of the things that, that get counted as postmodern skepticisms are themselves dogmatic pronouncements like, you know, knowledge is power or, you know, um, meaning is impossible or something or language determines thought or philosophy is logocentric or something like that. Those are all sort of statements. And the classical skeptical philosopher Sextus Empiricus uh, once distinguished between, you know, uh, 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 three kind, sort of three moments in thought, basically. Uh, first, a kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, the, you know, people who dogmatically insist that something is the case, and then what he called 
dogmatic skeptics or academic skeptics, which were those people who knew that they didn't know something. And, and here he's referring to, you know, the so-called um, uh, acad academy skeptics or academic skeptics that came to dominance in, in Plato's uh, academy several generations after Plato. Um, but neither of those does he think was, was, was any good. In fact, what he thought the true skeptic, the true uh, skeptic was someone who does not know whether he or she knows. Uh, so to the, the true skeptic, according to Sixus Empiricus, is one who can doubt even their own unknowing so that they're not a dogmatic skeptic, but a skeptical skeptic. And so uh, from that discourse, I lift up this term zeteticism, which was an old you know, skeptic term that referred to, it means literally like seeker, but, it, but using it to refer to uh, what we could think of as a someone who is not dogmatically insisting that they don't know, but may want to have a much more fine-tuned notion of knowledge and know that, yeah, I could be wrong or I could be right, to quote uh, 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 John Linden and uh, Public uh, Image Limited uh, or whatever that's, however that song goes, um, but to recognize the, the limitations of knowledge uh, and the limitations also of doubt. So, uh, you know, you could be uh, a brain in a vat, um, uh, but but you could also you know be a, a but a demon could have made you think that you might be a brain in a vat or or what have you and um, um, and so what I wanted to suggest too is that um, uh, sort of to historicize it even more that the problem with many knowledge traditions is not claims to skepticism or claims to or emphasis on doubt but rather claims to certainty so people like to beat up uh, Rene Descartes. But the problem with Descartes is not that he said you should doubt everything, but rather that he identified knowledge with certainty, I want to argue. And if you assume that knowledge is certain uh, and that the primary function of knowledge is to achieve certainty, you're going to you're going to run into problems because you're always going to be able to doubt things. Even the things that Descartes, you know, Descartes wasn't himself a skeptic. He, he actually does his meditations as a sort of clarative exercise before he formulates his theory about the world and, and how it works. And, um, you know, a kind of weird physics that, that was influential on its own day, but we don't uh, find engaging at the moment. Um, so what I wanted to suggest is that, um, what, that we need to de-emphasize certainty. And so zeteticism could also be thought of as a kind of radical fallibilism, which leans into the doubt rather than into the, the, the kind of certainty end of, of, of fallibilism. Um, and then, um, to, to, so then, so the chapter first lays out that as a kind of broad epistemological stance. It shows why, uh, for political reasons too, uh, emancipatory uh, knowledge is better than wide-ranging skepticisms, uh, and that actually what we want is humble knowledge, not uh, amplified in infinite doubt. Um, uh, but also uh, for good epistemological reasons, as scholars were constantly adjudicating knowledge claims. And then in the latter part of that chapter, uh, it's probably the least radical part of the chapter maybe, but I turned toward uh, uh, a system of inference known as abductive inference, articulated by Charles Saunders Peirce and a bunch of other folks, uh, which thinks about particular strategies for thought. For, for achieving a kind of zetetic knowledge, a kind of humble knowledge. And so uh, I, I wanna talk in that chapter, you know, problems of induction, uh, problems, of, um, uh, problems of deduction, and then talk about how abduction is a better way for us to proceed in the humanities and social sciences uh, to adjudicate knowledge claims. And I, I try and lay out the steps really concretely. Again, um, this is one of those things that, that I, I really don't wanna be doing any kind of, um, I want to be applicable for, for scholars in a range of disciplines. So um, I think it's the, in the, its conclusions are perhaps the, uh, you know, the turn to abduction is probably the least radical part of that chapter, but, but I think uh, that that chapter hopefully can help clarify some issues in terms of skepticism and in terms of what we should be doing um, as scholars and what our stance toward knowledge should be. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is something which is very important in a scholarly uh, circle, uh, trying to uh, have a more better understanding of epistemology in that sense. So let's come to chapter four, the revaluations of values. Now, I think uh, even though this 
book is a very densely theoretical work. I think this chapter on values also digests the personal aspect of uh, human endeavor, right? And I think uh, the talk on values. So how does a metaborden understand values? One of the things that I'm trying to do in this section as a whole is uh, I note that a lot of times when we're talking about knowledge and value, we have our wires crossed. We tend to invalidate, invalidate epistemological claims on the basis of values, and there's a strong tendency of repudiating value-based claims basically on skeptical grounds. And, and I want to think about, you know, and there's this broader notion that what we should be committed to in the humanities and social sciences is a kind of... Uh, you know, value freedom, or we should be value free. And I want to, and I want to historicize that. And I, in that chapter, I start by noting when um, we got, got this idea that the humanities and social sciences should be value free and how that actually met with certain kinds of contradictions. What it actually didn't do was flesh values. I, I want to argue it didn't actually get rid of values. The call toward value neutrality mostly functioned to drive values underground. I think uh, to, to its credit, the call to value neutrality did make some helpful observations. We shouldn't be distorting uh, our scholarship in the service of predetermined value conclusions. But on the other hand, what tended to happen was uh, we had the proliferation of value-laden terms, uh, but now in a predominantly skeptical or negative key. So, um, and, and this occurred both alongside the diffusion of notions of value neutrality and alongside diffusions of notions of cultural relativism, which was originally supposed to be a similar kind of methodological intervention in anthropological circles, you know, not, uh, you know, sometimes called um, ethical relativism or cultural relativism. Uh, in the very moment when all these things are becoming popular, we were also articulating um, these kind of negative lodestars. It's the same period in which terms like racism, sexism, homophobia, et cetera, came to dominance. And uh, they were often seen precisely not as values, but, but, uh, but we're used to 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 um, critique. Uh, we're using them to critique each other, and uh, I, I think that's actually good. Those terms are good, and those are important things to critique. But it, but I just want to suggest that um, you know we, we haven't actually been operating under value neutrality. It's just that when people speak up in terms of positive things, they tend to get shot down. And I'm, I've read so many academic books where you only get the thing that the scholar really wants in the conclusion. Like it's a long, tedious rehearsal of something, and then only at the very end does someone glimmer for an instant what it is that would actually made the scholarship important to them. And I want to suggest that by owning and being explicit about our values. Uh, with each other that actually in a way can help us be more objective that we're working together uh and that by if you know what my values are it's going to help you uh uh in it have a sense of what parts of my work to to read with more critical scrutiny and what parts not to or, or what have you i mean it, it doesn't actually uh, it isn't actually to its own benefit uh to 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 um to, to focus on a, a straw manning uh, or to, to articulating a kind of value neutrality that we're not actually following. And I also want to argue that we tend to have epistemic values. So when we talk about things as being rigorous or well argued, or uh, you know, when we talk about uh, uh, scholarly, uh, you know, we, we evaluate our scholarly work in, in, in these value-laden terms all the time, even when we're not as explicit about it, um, even when we don't tend to recognize it. So, you know, to, to say that something is a, you know, a, a well-argued text or whatever is is already to say something implicit about it, or to say that uh, uh, something is uh, makes a contribution to the field. I mean, you know, we, we tend to use violated terms all the time, even if we don't recognize them as value-laden. And so in this chapter, I depart from, you know, David Hume's uh, critique, uh, you know, David Hume's uh, treatise on human nature, uh, which is sometimes thought to set up this is-ought uh, distinction. I, I talked about how Hume didn't uh, 
think it had the implications that most people think it does. Um, I talk about how that there are, in fact, some legitimate ways to move from an is to an ought. Uh, and that's in the first part of the chapter. Um, you know, it doesn't mean anything goes. Again, I don't want to say that this means, you know, oh, you just have values and you throw out all epistemic standards. What I want to show is that uh, I don't like the word fact very much, but let's just use it for a second. I want to show how uh, facts uh, often, uh, the values, adjudicating values often are based on factual claims and adjudicating what counts as a fact is often based on evaluating claims as well. So it's not that we need to throw out one or the other, but rather that we need to think a lot about our evidence and the standards um, and values that are built into evidence and into our scholarly arguments. So uh, having done that, uh, in the last part of the chapter, uh, I, you know, since I've been calling on on scholars to put their own values on the table, I want to put my values on the table. And so, in a way, as a sort of um, prolegomena to a future project, I start to talk about what the human sciences could do as a way of life, like what it would mean uh, if we were going to try and uh, think about how we might positively uh, embrace a kind of flourishing. Um, and so here I combine two established uh, discourses, but, but I think in a novel formulation, namely uh, critical theory and virtue ethics. And I want to talk about the advantages of doing virtue ethics broadly construed. My background is it's particularly um, an East Asian uh, and South Asian formulations of virtue ethics, but with a little Marxism and Aristotelianism thrown in there as well. Uh, but I want to talk about how uh, adding that to critical theory can help address some of the limitations of critical theory, which uh, as wonderful as it is and, and how it's a great home to me and I'm glad to be on a, uh, a podcast and new books in critical theory, uh, I think we could go further uh, in, in formulating positive projects. We're really good in critical theory in particular at uh, addressing and focusing on suffering. And I think that's great. And I don't want us to stop doing that. And, and we're good at calling out injustice. Also, absolutely fabulous, absolutely important, really valuable, but we're often not very good about talking about the other side what would uh, what would a po more positively formulated society what would a just uh, world look like um, what would it take for humans to be uh, happy um, what would uh, you know if we, if we, we call for a revolution but what would be on, what could be on the other side of that revolution and so in the very conclusion I borrow a phrase from um, uh, Hannah Arendt's on revolution and you know revolutionary happiness uh, and, and I think a little bit about what it would look like to do this um, kind of fusion between critical theory and virtue ethics both uh, drawing from um, some virtue ethics um, uh, notions of human flourishing and then um, and, and pluralizing them. Uh, sometimes those can be a little bit monolithic, but I, I want to then look at plural forms of human flourishing, not just one a monolithic version of that. Uh, and then also from that, uh, bringing out certain kinds of cautions uh, and critiques built into critical theory so that we can call out some of the limitations uh, of, um, uh, of both critical theory and um, uh, virtue ethics to, to, to the benefit of both. Um, and that's the chapter that is most prolegomena-like. It's uh, uh, all how the book could have, each of the main sections of the book could have been its own book. And this one, I'm just sort of at the very end there, just in the last few pages, laying my own values on the table. Um, but I think then, uh, and, and at one point, the whole structure of the book was in the opposite order. So there was one time when this chapter was the first chapter, and then you could see the way that the epistemology, all everything follows through uh, uh, from, from um, I wasn't, in backward order in terms of all the chapters, but it was in backward order in terms of all the parts. So this was originally going to be a, uh, uh, the first chapter, but but it, um, you know you could read it at the beginning or at the end. But in either case, I, I want to argue that certain orientations toward knowledge are important for human flourishing, and and then I want to argue that multi-species flourishing is important for human flourishing. And then once you grant that, uh, you then might want to be uh, able to attend to the uh, our multi-species uh, semiotic environment, and that's where our hylosemiotics comes in. And then you might think about how reaching across to people in different uh, cultures and different languages. Languages, and that's where philosophies of translation become important. And once having done that, you might notice that social formations are different uh, in diverse parts of the world, and that might lead you to 
uh, a theory of social kinds. And then once you've done that, you might want to know, you know, what are the limitations of social kind theory and what do we need to deconstruct and what don't we? And then finally, it might lead us toward question simplistic notions of the real and lead us toward a kind of meta-realism. So the whole book could be uh, flipped over and and I uh, have encouraged rereading. Like I think people, and, and uh, some people, a couple of people have said that they got a lot out of rereading the book because you can kind of, having gone to see where I, where I end up, reread the whole thing in a different way. And, and I hope to, to be a benefit. I try and write in a way, again, non-jargony. And I actually taught in an undergraduate class with some smart undergraduates and had them, you know, ask me things. What do I mean by this, that, and the other thing? And in the editing process, that let me um, be more specific. And so, um, but even then, you know, we had to go really slowly. And so the chapters are short in part because of publishing limitations. Um, uh, although I'm, you know, very grateful to the press for having published the book. They made me cut, uh, you know, almost half of it. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, it's a dense book uh, and, and forgive me for that, but uh, but I hope you could get something out of reading it and then perhaps rereading it as well. Yeah. So that's where it ends up. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a lot there uh, that we didn't get to talk about today. Uh, but but I think um, thankfully, thank you for encouraging me to go through chapter by chapter, because that should give readers a broad sense of the work. And then the end goal is to produce something, uh, a kind of paradigm change in the disciplines. So the title metamodernism has also caused some confusions because people think I'm describing a pre-existing metamodernism before they pick up the book. And that's not what I'm trying to do. I mean, there are other people have used that term and I engage with them in some detail, but what I'm actually trying to do is pro provide a new scholarly model that's appropriate to our mm -hmm. current epoch. And, 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 you know, uh, and if that's going to work, it's going to take other people. It, it's going to have to be a collective endeavor because for reasons I argue in that chapter, knowledge making is not an isolated individual, you know, thinker locked in a room, just, I don't know, cogitating like Descartes or something, but a communal enterprise that we all have to work at together. Uh, and so, um, you know, but that's what it's trying to call for as a kind of paradigm change throughout across the humanities and social sciences. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah. And a specific benefit to many critical subfields. So, I mean, I read, uh, I haven't maybe mentioned this uh, uh, yet in this podcast, but uh, the scholarship I'm engaged with is, is very much in the wheelhouse of not just philosophy, uh, but also world philosophy, uh, and then a lot of uh, humanities and social scientific disciplines, and then uh, counter-hegemonic subfields like critical theory, critical race theory, feminist theory, and queer theory all uh, play a big role in this book, and you can read it once, once you read it. But I think that this is, in that respect, allied to, um, you know, and I've long worked in post-colonial theory, and so this is, you know, all uh, in directed toward those kind of endeavors. And I want to suggest that those, uh, um, uh, let's say, uh, a broad political epistemological or scholarly projects would be better served by this kind of work than some of the postmodernist theory, which does it, which fits uncomfortably with many of these groups and movements. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, as I've said in the beginning, this book itself is, uh, as the title suggests, the future of theory in a sense that I think the contents of the book will be discussed and debated in the years to come. And I uh, I think, you know, for me also personally, I think I will have to go back and read the book again. And as, as I've also said, I mean, there are so many things in each chapter that I want to go deep and really discuss about. Um, but I think this is a short podcast, uh, which will not do, uh, which we don't have time to do that one. So I think uh, this book, in that sense, is something uh, which really speaks of uh, about the title itself, right? Metamodernism, the future of theory. Thank you, Jason Stone, for um, being here. And I think it's, a, it's a really a pleasure to listen to you speak about uh, what you have written and, you know, such uh, tense ideas and such, um, uh, such tense theories that have been provided in the book. And I think it's a really uh, 
big pleasure for NBN to also have you and to talk about, talk about your book. So uh, tell me something about your future project works and also about how someone can reach you. Yeah. Great. So I'll do this. So first up, you can find me on my professional website, um, which you can Google um, Jason Josephson Storm or my full name, Jason Ananda Josephson Storm, um, and find me um, at Williams College uh, or my blog, Absolute Disruption, which I don't update very often, but once did. I'm also on Twitter, uh, although I don't really like Twitter. Uh, in terms of what I'm doing next, um, so what I'm working on now is uh, one of the things that um, um, I was started working on this book, but I just couldn't fit it in, but um, is it actually it's a, a new theory of power. So one of the other things that I've observed is that um, in the humanities and social sciences, we often terminate our theories or buttress our theories with reference to power. We say that language is all about power. Race uh, is really a question of power. Uh, gender is all about power. Class is primarily determined by power. I mean, you know, but, but a whole range of things that, that we want to say terminate in power. And the thing is that our dominant theories of power um, basically uh, are, are broadly Foucauldian, not actually Foucault, but a kind of synthesis of Foucault and a couple other thinkers, perhaps Foucault, a little bit of Gramsci, maybe a little bit of Butler, that kind of gelled in their current form, maybe in the late 80s. I mean, there hasn't been a grand reappraisal of power uh, in significant terms uh, in, in recent decades. I mean, there, there are little things here or there. Um, you know, there was a moment, you know, um, but there hasn't been much beyond Foucault in, in a fundamental way. And it turns out that the Foucauldian theories of power have some kinds of uh, problems. They, they were valuable for their own day, but they have certain kinds of um, uh, explanatory impasses. And, and also we aren't really following Foucault. And so the hybrid form is particularly uncomfortable and it leads toward contradictions. So the new book is an attempt to kind of re-theorize power uh, in a fresh way for the humanities and social sciences. And that's what I'm writing on now. Um, yeah, uh, I have about, yeah, anyway, uh, I've maybe a third of it written, but I still have a lot to go. So it'll be a little while. Uh, yeah. Yeah, really interesting project ahead. And I think uh, we would also love to have you once that work is done, right? And to talk about your work. That's, that's really interesting. And thank you so much, um, Jason Stone, for uh, being here. And yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me here. And uh, thank you, listeners, for listening.